to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Every fortnight, we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 24, Apocalypse. rapid survey of the apocalypse. One very intelligent person thought I could do a duster in an hour of the total symbolism of the end of the world. So I've decided, of course, not to do that. What I will do is talk about the general principle underlying it. A long time ago, there were men called prophets who believed, or said they believed, I believe that they believed, that they were instruments of God and had to rush about telling civilized people how wicked they were and of the necessity of reform. Now the prophets were complaining bitterly about corruption in civilizations in the ancient world. And they themselves heard voices inside themselves complaining and declared that these voices were divine in origin and believed that it was their duty to speak what they heard. So they went out and condemned all wicked kings and tyrants and governments and orthodoxes and the authorities replied by killing the prophets. And that was the general rule in the ancient world. Prophets prophesy and condemn the wickedness of established governments. The governments reply by killing the prophets. And it became necessary for prophets to be progressively more and more careful. And then there arose a new thing called the apocalyptic writings. These were men who had not voices in their head from God, but visions visual images which occurred to them and they were told write what thou seest in the book so the difference between the prophets and the apocalyptic was that the prophets used to say and the apocalyptic writers made books which were for study but the apocalyptic were men of vision and the word really meant a vision of something which is supposed to explain something else. And when you see the book of Revelation in the New Testament, if you read it carefully, you will find everything in it symbolically borrowed from the Old Testament and various other books, some apocryphal, some like the book of Daniel and so on, very ancient Jewish thoughts. And there has always been in the Jewish mind a complaint about corruption in orthodox governments. The apocalyptics were men who had visions and wrote down the visions and declared the visions to be revelations, exposures of the truth about the end of the world, meaning the final outcome of the battle between the good boys who were not governmental officials and the bad boys who were. So we find progressively throughout history the idea that governments in general tend to be corrupt. 
because they have to maintain themselves against a mass of people generally not very well self-controlled. Let's think about this very carefully. We all know individually that we have a very large mass of impulses inside us that do not obey laws of logic. Logic is the formal aspect of reality. Logic tells you exactly whether a thing is something or is not that thing. If we use Aristotelian form of logic, we would say a thing is what it is, it is not what it is not, and between being what it is and being what it is not, there is no middle. Now, it's quite simple to see that anything, whatever, has an identity peculiar to itself. And this identity is both power, form, and function. It is a definite amount of energy involved in being. It has a definite form, and because of its form, power, it has a definite mode of activity, which we call its function. We use three-letter Fs and call it triple F as a mnemonic. Force, form, function. And this corresponds with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in religion. Father means generative power, Son means form, and Holy Spirit means the function of the power in that form. So when we say triple F or triple F, we have to think everything, whatever, whether it's mineral, vegetable, animal, human, angelic, whatever, is a definite amount of energy, which we will call force, a definite form of that energy, which we call form or shape, and a definite function or activity of that form of energy. Now, when we go back in history, we find a certain point where writing is invented, and strictly, when we say history, we mean recorded in writings of some kind. When we say prehistory, we mean a speculative period, speculative to us, because there are no writings in that period. And roughly about 6,000 years ago, the language was written down for the first time, and before that time, there were no written rules to appeal to. Now before that time, everybody did whatever he felt like doing, and there were no written rules. Now it is quite obvious that you cannot formulate a system of government or control a nation of people without rules. But when you formulate rules, the men that formulate the rules do not intend to tie themselves up with those rules, but they intend to tie up everybody else if they can do so. So the law, which means that which is laid down, by the men that make definitions of good and bad. The law is invented for the good of the lawmakers. And as they see it, it is good for other people who cannot make laws to be subjected to laws by people who can make them. Now here is the division between the goods and the bads because all the official laws made by governments have been made to maintain government. And you know, historically, there have been many persecutions 
of people of opinions different from those held by government. There have been inquisitions, there have been people burned at the stake, hanged, murdered, and so on, entirely by the lawmakers. So a difference of opinion arose between the lawmakers and those who were bright enough to see that the laws made were really statements of the will of the lawmakers to control the situation and handle people who were not bright enough to make laws for themselves. When the prophets saw the corruption that arose in the beginnings of civilization, they spoke very loudly against the corruption of government. They wanted man to grow and to evolve towards a conscious, deliberate, free-willed, intelligent way of relating. But masses of people do not show very much sign of any capacity for deliberate formulation of self-laws and obedience to those laws. So the few who made the laws had it in general their own way within society. Now the prophets, as we've seen, were put to death, persecuted and so on by established authorities, kings, tyrants, orthodoxies of all kinds. And gradually there arose a method by men who said, if we tell the truth openly, we will be put to death. John the Baptist loses his head because he insults Herod and his mode of marriage. So his head is off. The head is the centre of intellect. The intellect is a critical faculty. The critical faculty must be removed if it openly makes statements against the ruler. So then the apocalyptics came. They said, don't openly tell the truth. Instead of saying, large, corrupt body of orthodox religionists, call it lady riding on beast. You find that in the book of Revelation, and the expressions are borrowed from earlier documents before the New Testament. Now, the beast is a symbol of the state, a big animal. Now, how do we arrive at that symbol? Well, you take your own body, and your body is made of millions and millions of little cells. And all the cells in your body are under orders from certain several centers in the body. In yoga those are called lotuses or chakras. In the west they're called nerve plexi. There are centers like the brain and the heart, the larynx, various other places which actually give orders to all the cells in the body. The orders may be by hormone insertion or by various adjustments electro-nervous but orders are definitely given in the body. You can give orders to your body, and your body will obey the order. Do a simple example yourself. Say, I will hold up my right hand, and then hold it up. Are there any of you who can't do it? Try it. Why is it if you say this to an audience, they don't do it usually? Very few do it. Most of them are thinking, I'm not going to become into doing a trick like that. But can you actually move? Nod your head. Now there's a lot of head nodding. That's yes. 
I'm thinking. That means no. Can we do it or can we not? Yes. Yeah? Notice we don't get an immediate chorus from everybody, but from a few. And focus that fact. A few will stick their neck out and say yes. The many don't. They're cautious. Because they don't know what's coming next. And they think the ones that know when asked to are naive and easy to go. It might be that their gullibility is also their means of salvation. Because it's possible to hear the truth to which the head would nod automatically if you didn't stop it. Caution stops you accepting a truth in case another truth that follows it you might not like. So we'll try again now. <laughs> well, those of you who have sufficient control over the head and neck muscles nub the head. We got a greater number there, but still there are some not quite sure. Next statement may be, will you please nod your head more vigorously, and more vigorously until it falls off. <laughs> I've actually seen head nodders in a religious ritual nod themselves into concussion. And they do it quite deliberately, saying they are destroying egotism. And they fall on the ground unconscious. And when they come out of it, they had a rest from egotism. And when they wake up, the egotism reasserts itself. <laughs> And that is because egotism itself is really fundamental to all living beings. There is no such thing as a living being that is not basically egoic, and therefore self-willed. Now let's look at this. You can give an order to your body, like nod the head. If I don't mind, well, I will nod the head. I don't feel intimidated when my head nods. I think my muscles have obeyed me. Now, Saint Augustine was a very good self-examining type man, and he observed that if he gave a message to his body, point out the right leg, it obeyed. But if he said to his mind, control yourself, it didn't. So he distinguished in a body which obeys and a mind which doesn't. There's something very awkward about the mind. It's more slippy, it's more diplomatic, and she's more disobedient than the body is, which is very strange. Now imagine before civilization, every beautiful woman was a target for every alert man. And putting a ring on her finger did not protect her. Animal than it does today. But some men who had beautiful wives didn't like naughty men running away with their wives. So they made rules called no adultery allowed. And if you did do that, you had your feet cut off, saying, thou shalt not walk in forbidden places, namely my bedroom when I'm out. That was a law against adultery. A very good law, because indiscriminate relations are not hygienic. Now, when the law was made, it had to be enforced. And then arose a terrible thing, which dominated history ever since. Having experienced that an enforced law conferred power 
from the lawmaker and enforcer. A belief that power as such, wielded over other people, was a good thing, arose in the lawmakers. They actually felt tremendously powerful to be in a position to make laws and feel that they were superior to the men on whom they imposed the laws. And so there arose two groups in the human race. Lawmakers fascinated with power, and that is really the only sin. Power over against infinity, over against other beings. Using God as a shorthand for the infinite, power even over God was pursued. We still do it in scientific space travel experiments. We are trying to get hold of enough power to rule the universe and then, with that power, rule all other beings. So we can divide people into two kinds. Those who are happy to rule other people without consulting their needs or their wishes and those who have an idea that people should not be compelled to do things they don't want to do. Now that divides the world into two kinds. The power pursuers and the ones who reject power over other people. Now the power pursuers in all the major religions are called the mighty of this world. They are the great rulers. And they are called, in their final phase, the Antichrist. Now using that Christ word, a Greek word, chrism anointed, it is a symbolic reference to cosmic logic. Cosmic logic, the logic of relationships of all beings. Now all beings are made of energy. The energy is sentient, likes and dislikes, and can will a process. So all beings can react against attempts to dictate to them from outside. And no matter how power may be gained and how much of it may be gained by power pursuers, they can never control the energy fully of other beings. So we now divide the human race into two kinds. Those that pursue power and love the idea of power over other beings and those who do not. Now, where do we find the greatest number? In the power pursuers or in the others? Where are the greatest number? In the power pursuers. In the power pursuers? Power you think more of the power pursuers? Well, that, that's what we call the cynical view. That is a statement we'll say 95% of the people in this room want power over each other. Yes? And 5% don't. Is that true? Would you like power over all the other people? Or would you rather not have power over them and request them to be decent and not seek power over you. <laughs> Which is it? Power over other people is supposed to mean, to, um, mean that they're going to then have a responsibility, and most folks don't like responsibility. 
Most people don't like responsibility. So most people do not pursue power over other people. And that's the opposite of what Deb said. So again, we have the two opposing opinions. In this one little room, two opinions in total opposition. And Greta has given a reason why certain masses of people do not pursue power because they dislike responsibility. Dev says that those who do not pursue power are ignorant and have not seen the responsibilities. And what does Greta say to that? Is that true? I would say there's quite a lot of truth in that, yes, actually. Is that enough truth to overthrow your point of view? Um, I'm not sure about that. There we are. We're in a state of ambiguity now. (laughs) I think, I I feel that um, a great number of people, probably the mass of people, are really not even capable of working out whether they are pursuing power and whether there's going to be a responsibility in the power they're seeking out. I really think they're really non-compassmentous about the whole thing. You're saying most people are crackers, aren't you? So this apparent difference of opinion between Deb and Gretel is not so wide as first appeared. Let's look, is it possible to be, might actually feel, I don't like giving orders in principle to other beings. I believe that other beings would be better if they could give their own orders. I do not wish to give any orders, but I would like to instruct people how to give their own orders to themselves in an acceptable way. Yeah? You're asking that the mass of people actually can work that out? No. I'd say they do. Uh, no, I would say they haven't. Well, we've got three opinions. <laughs> I say this, the word consciousness should not be applied unless you put into words what it is you're aware of. So you can be very, very aware without being conscious. Come with S-C-I-C, cut, analyze, O-U-S, mean. With cutting or analytical being, that's conscious. And you can only become conscious by putting it into words. But you can be very, very aware of a truth without putting it into words. Uh, yes? Yes, yes, yes. How logical? No, because if truth is the formal aspect of yeah. reality, and Jesus said that he was the truth, then you'd have to not have a form in words possible in order to see the truth as now. Not have a form in words. Yes, in other words, you must have an awareness before you have consciousness. No, I'm talking about truth. But truth is the form of reality. Well, the word is a form, isn't it? Word is the means whereby you make quite sure how to define the form. Without the word, you couldn't define the form. But you could be aware of it. Yeah? <coughs> well, how, how does it manifest inwardly if, if you are aware of it, and yet it hasn't got a form? Well, somebody told me the other day, I feel all confused. 
That's how it manifests. Awareness of confusion. So we had a talk for about two hours. And at the end of this time, this person said, Now I see. What should happen is we put into words the hidden forms in the awareness and put it in logical form. And then it was seen. And this very charming person said, Now I know why women are mad. That was confusion. Now I know why women are mad. I say, why are they mad? She said, because they put their trust in an external being and believe that that external being has got their welfare at heart. Therefore, women are mad. That was an analysis. That came out through use of words. And do you believe it? And the word mad is very interesting. It's M-A, which means ma, mother, or feminine principle. And D, which means division. Mad actually means that your fundamental feminine nature, which is a feeling nature, not intellectual, divides itself by deliberately externalizing its desires and anticipations and it lassoes some unfortunate intellective male and then begins to train it and hopes that it will provide all that the feminine wants. And this is the cause of feminine madness. That is to say, quite simply, self-division. Now, I'll ask the ladies in this room if they could, for a moment, accept a definition. Truth is the formal side of reality. Have you, ladies, at any time in your lives, hoped for, looked for, and believed possible to find an external male who could be 100% trustworthy and devoted entirely to your welfare and not his? Not 100%. <laughs> not 100%. And there's an awful lot of silence there. I won't be able to interpret... What? The hope of. Hope of. That's why they're mad. Yeah. Why? Why hope for the impossible? Because when you're hoping for the impossible, you don't know that it's not possible. And that proves that you're mad. <laughs> if, you, if you're if you're hoping for an impossible and don't know it's impossible, you're on a, an eternally open agreement with nothing. That's the position of woman. Hmm. Do we agree? And the feminine aspect of the human race. You also have a strange feeling that you'll create that being by just simply hoping for it. Yes. That's another feminine aspect. Another feminine aspect, you see. The woman believes that she can create this sense of responsibility in the male. That's great. (laughs) There's an Indian word for that. Maha-ma. The great mother who can actually bring up a son never to leave home, never to get married and nurse the mother in her old age and make her death happy and comfortable and follow her into the next world to repeat the performance and so from world to world and incarnation to incarnation. But it doesn't always work out that way. In fact, I never found one case where it did. Now, the Ma principle is made of a glyph M for substance A for action. Ma means substantial activity. Now let's examine a little bit of Plutinus. Substance or matter matter, is really spirit 
demoted. Spirit is pure initiative, and when the spirit gives up its initiative and allows it to go into a state of inertia to provide a necessary resistance whereby spirit will know itself to be such, the inertic power is a feminine aspect and it is an impedance to initiative but in itself it feels that something has gone wrong with the bargain because when that aspect of spirit allows itself to become inert that is to say passive to a stimulus from outside it has no control over the stimulator so it cannot win as long as it is passive it has no control so the Ma matter principle in giving up its spiritual initiative has placed itself in the hands of a being that theoretically might have intelligent initiative but in practice seldom does so there's a feeling in the female somehow a wrong choice has been made how can we remedy it? and there's only one way of real remedy the female has to develop the masculine component of his own being and not to waste his energy trying to work on an external male and bring him under the control of the non-rational feminine want how can you bring an intellect under the control of an unformulated appetite it is impossible now let's go back to governments formulate intellectual rules in order to try to control from outside their appetites of the non-intellectuals now can the non-intellectuals understand the meaning of the law how many of you so-called liptitular Christians remember the Ten Commandments huh no have you got them like this? Well, if you had, it wouldn't matter because they're Old Testament and they're wiped out by another commandment which is really one with two statements love God and your neighbor as yourself the rest is commentary now how many of us remember that simple fact? whatever we do, first we must love God and then our neighbor as ourselves, because our neighbor is a creature of God whom we love do we actually love and consider the welfare of the people to whom we relate more than we do our own good or equal to our own good and if we don't we're falling under the idea of utilitarian relations with other beings which are not relations of love so we find in the individual human being exactly the same problem that there is for a nation we have literally billions of cells American reckoning in our body and they have their own opinion about what to do the little white cells go about swallowing bacteria they enjoy it and they do not know that we exist in the same way on the embankment of London and Paris elsewhere are methylated spirit drinkers who do not weekly read the equivalent of Hansard or any official documents yeah they don't want to know the thing is get the mess now there are more people pursuing an easy life of non-responsibility 
and they are saying we don't like giving orders to people not merely because we don't like responsibility but because we don't like being on the receiving end of orders given from other people so it's really a very complex thing now the prophets have observed that governments, tyrants, kings, high priests and so on all impose on the non-rational masses rules which the non-rational masses cannot fabricate for themselves and then fall into enjoying the power of giving orders now this is number one crime in the universe it's listed as the crime of Lucifer pride in self-power is really the only sin the rest are merely particular applications the desire to rule other people from outside them the desire to trick them the desire to deceive them in order to make government easy in order to give more and more power progressively to governments now the prophets are put to death for saying so loudly so the apocalyptic writers the ones who have visions and then write the visions down in the book deliberately make the visions very very obscure because they don't want the king to know there is a beast there with seven horns and ten heads who is it? he might be referring to what? Nero? maybe Domitian? maybe there was an emperor who said I'm divine in my own right the early Christians said no no you can't be only God is divine and there was slaughter because of that opinion difference so when we examine the apocalyptic writings they are writings in which visions visual images have been in the mind and it is called revelation and most people think revelation means take the veils off but it doesn't mean that it means reveil put another image in the place of the known one instead of saying that man, that king that self-declared royal being is a liar you say behold I see a spotted leopard going around eating people and destroying them and these spots are as numerous as his crimes that's apocalyptic, that's a vision now you have to work it out and by hiding under an animal and vegetable and mineral symbolism you can insult great people and they don't know they're being insulted unless they get a handbook of symbology and if you think that the handbook of symbology will insult you, do you buy it? even in paperback? <laughs> I mean there are actually on the market innumerable books of insults to governments they're called mystical writings, esoteric writings occult writings, Kabbalistic writings they're all gatherings of insults against governments who have been corrupted by the will to power they're all on the top shelf mm -hmm. on the top shelf I keep them under the bed <laughs> not out of my way so esoteric means essential secret exoteric means a version of that secret which will obscure the secret if you explain it to somebody the vision has become apocalyptic it's become given to you in a form 
that you have to work out. There's a whore of Babylon, and she is corrupt, and she is conniving with the rulers of the world. And what does that mean? Well, the Protestants said it means uh, Roman Catholicism has prostituted pseudo-Christianity. That's what the Lutherans and other people thought about it when they made their revolt. Is that nice, or is it asking for trouble? Asking for trouble. Because then we divide again the people, and we find the apocalyptics have been very largely responsible for this kind of battle. The apocalyptics wrote their books and said, like in the Revelation, and if you dare to add anything to this book, I will add to you the plagues thereof. If you dare to take anything away, I will take away your part in life. This is to frighten you. And this makes everybody who's power conscious want to read the book. So the men that want to read the book, that's the hijackers of any period of time, they read the book and find that they can actually justify revolting against existing government. So the Orthodox rabbis, pre-Christian, when they heard these visions of the prophets and then of the apocalyptic writers, said, we must suppress it. When they were in the Babylonian captivity, certain Persian ideas were adopted by the Jews. And these ideas are very simple, and they were called dualistic. But they weren't dualistic. They were two brothers of one father. Now, if there are two brothers of one father, is it really a dualism? There is a principle of God, absolute, and he has two sons, we'll call them light and dark, Ahura Mazda Ahriman. And when the Jews were there in Babylon, they learned about this, and thought, this is great. We can utilize it. We can say, everybody who opposes Jews is anti-God. Later on, that term will become anti-Christ. But at that time, it's anti-God. Anybody who captures Jews, locks them up and ill-treats them is anti-God. Because the God they referred to was Yahweh, the Jewish God. Now the government's reply is to suppress the Jews. And just as in Babylon they were suppressed, and then through their superior cunning, got themselves returned to Jerusalem. But when they got there later on, the Romans come along and suppress them. Because Whatever there was an apocalyptic book, a book with symbols in it that you could interpret against the government, people reading them became rebels. And the orthodox governors of the subject people, like the orthodox rabbis of the synagogue and so on, they said this is causing trouble for us because we have already come to terms with our captors, actually in Babylon, and later on under Rome, a lot of Jewish people had very, very high positions. And they didn't mind conniving with their rulers to rule the masses of the people. But the few apocalyptics read the books that had been written with the visions in it and interpreted the visions and said, we are correct to revolt not only against the Babylonian rulers, not only against the Roman rulers, but against our own leaders who are conniving with the Babylonians or with the Romans. 
till they had this wonderful thing, revolt even against your own people. So we find people, zealots, fanatics, rising up against Rome, the result is slaughter and the destruction of the temple, which the Orthodox did not want. So you've got two kinds of enemies. The enemy that comes from outside and imposes by physical power, by might, upon you, and the enemy, which is your own original religious readers, the scribes, who studied the documents, who become the leaders because they have read. Read and lead are linked words. The more you know about the documents, the more you're in a position to lead. But if the leaders of a subject people connive with the rulers to subject their own people, then their own people will revolt if they read an apocalyptic book. So the logic of it is this. Once upon a time, mankind was simple and one. We know we've all got lots of ancestors, but if we go back, we find that in the ancient times there were very few. We spring from one primary human type, which we call the Adamic type. Now, Adam has a wife, which is his own emotional feeling aspect, stressing on the physical, emotional. He is a man of initiative and intellect, but he becomes seduced by his wife, that is, by his feminine aspect, his emotions, his feelings, his wishes, his wants, his desires. They corrupt him and mislead him and get him away from his own intellect. The name for that intellect is going to become Logos, cosmic logic. Now, they give birth to a son, Cain. And Cain is a word that means cunning, knowledgeable, intellectual, empirical, isolationist, individual, separative, selfish. And he murders his brother, Abel. Abel means he who thinks that God is his father, who has belief in the power of God to save, and who wishes to behave in a godlike manner on earth. But the earth is the place where Cain, by physical violence, that is the empirical physical scientist, can kill his brother Abel, who is faith in God. So, faith in God is murdered by intellectual initiative. Now, the first thing that Cain does, after he's murdered Abel, is say, my punishment is more than I can bear. And God has put a mark on him, saying, let no man kill him. He's a murderer. And God says, let no man kill him. Why? Because Cain, the intellect, if that were murdered after faith had been murdered, there would be no possibility of the evolution of the human race. So the intellectual man is protected against death. And what does he do? He goes away east of Eden. Eden means non-division. And he becomes very sulky. And he thinks, how can I make myself secure? For every man's hand is against me. So he builds the first city on earth, the first civilization. And he does it to surround himself with his own progeny to protect him against other people that might be related to Adam, Eve, and Abel. But in so doing, he builds a city whose father is the first murderer. 
what are the qualities of his children? They tend to be murderers because they know that daddy built the city to protect himself against other people and daddy is giving orders and children, especially boys, don't like orders from father so they appear quarrels. So we now have two lines a line of Abel who's been murdered and whose blood cries from the ground where the ground means your physical body and the blood means your life principle in your body and it is saying, where is that uh, faith that you killed? This happens in every human being. Every single individual human being is an exact model of the whole universe. We call that microcosm of the macrocosm. <coughs> now, we have two lines, one from Cain, a murderer, and another from a substitute child put in place of Abel because it says, in place of murdered Abel, another son is given to Seth. And out of this line will come all the people who believe in God's rulership. They will be called, in the Bible, sons of God. And the others are sons of men, plural. Cain has murderous intent and will use power and murder to get his own way on this earth. This earth is a place where power is pursued by the lineal descendants of the first murderer. Meanwhile, inside our bodies, crying for vengeance is faith, Abel reborn as Seth. And we've all got to wish to have faith. But doesn't faith in us get murdered by intellect? Every time we have faith, don't we wonder whether we're right? Doesn't the intellect say, you could be wrong? So inside every individual, just as in the big universe, there is intellect throwing doubt upon faith. Now no man has seen God at any time. Because God is an invisible, infinite power. You cannot see infinity. So it is a matter of faith whether you believe it. Do you believe in an intelligent life force running through all the bodies in this room? Do you believe there is such a power? Do you believe somehow that power is intelligent and can relate all the bodies harmoniously, if it so wills? But does your intellect accept it? Not readily. You could be wrong, says the intellect. Now you're now in a position where you have to take signs and this has to do with the Armageddon. A lot of people worry about the nuclear war as an Armageddon. That worry's been going on for 6,000 years. Recorded. Now, think, every human being is like a little universe and it's like a little nation, a little group, a little organization in himself and he has faith with intellect throwing doubt on it. And this places us in a position where we are forced to choose whether we will have faith in faith or be shaken by the intellectual rationalization. Now if we choose to go on the doubt side intellect, we've gone on the Cain side and are murderous of any faith that contradicts the intellect. But if we have faith and persist in faith, 
We are not influenced by spurious arguments of intellectuals. Now these two fight inside the individual human being. But they also fight amongst the nations. And it is quite logical, and this is why the prophets prophesied, and why the Apocalyptics wrote their visionary books. It is quite possible from the original murder that there will be retaliation. And that faith and intellect will confront each other in a final showdown battle. Now this can occur within the individual, in which case there's a crisis, and a decision is made, either I reject faith and become an intellectual empiricist, or I reject intellect and become a person of faith. I don't know what's going to happen in five and a half years' time in Wigan. Funny that. But I have very great faith that something will happen. And that what will happen will be for the ultimate good of the denizens of Wigan. And through them on the world, they might extend the pier to the benefit of the whole society around them. They may become a model example, like the Liverpool uh, Festival in the new reclaimed territories became uh, for Europe for a short time. Something is going to happen, and the battle between intellect and faith is already done. The victory is gained before the battle starts, because faith has not got parts, and the intellect has. Now the one that's got parts has got too much to handle. It can fall to bits. So the ultimate victory is on the side of faith. But does the intellect believe it? No. So the great prophets and the apocalyptics, an intelligent, remarkable man, say like Augustine, said, this battle is inevitable. Augustine solved it by saying the Roman Empire is fundamentally wrong as a material power. But by a simple conversion to faith in God, the same Roman Empire becomes the city of God by a simple switch of faith. So it can then support the whole of Rome as an authority for God. And it's only a change of view inside us as individuals does it for us. We become persons of faith by an act of will. This is where if you've got a nice long time to read very weird and wonderful books by St. Augustine, you can enjoy yourself. Everything is an act of will, and the fundamental of will ultimately is to enjoy itself. But it cannot enjoy itself if it is riddled with self-contradiction. But the self-contradictions belong to the intellect, not to faith. So Augustine can say, love God and do what you will. If you first love whatever you do, it will only be an act of love. And it doesn't matter what you do. A dentist pulls out his tooth, not because he's annoyed at you, but because he will relieve you. A surgeon cuts up your tongue with a knife, not because he's uh, sadistic, but to get rid of a few old rocks that are formed in the tongue to relieve you. So the same act can be done with love of God, and it's absolutely justifiable 
which could be done from a fiendish, diabolical motive of ruling somebody. So now we have necessarily an ultimate battle between intellect empirical and faith non-empirical. And on earth, it's the intellectual power pursuers that try to suppress the ones of faith. Now it is stated very clearly there are more people on the side of the intellect in mankind since the fall than there are on the side of faith. So even in the Revelation, it doesn't say all will be saved. But those will be saved who in faith persist in their faith to the end in the midst of all manner of persecutions from the intellectual power-pursuing government. A precondition of salvation is that you must be persecuted to test your faith. And if you are not tested, you do not know whether you have faith. So in the final result, there will be a confrontation of cosmic logos, which will appear on a white horse with a two-edged sword in the mouth. And it will destroy the anti-messianic God movement. <coughs> the movement that says, do not have faith, believe in my scientific investigations, which confer power. I can promise you, in another 3,000 years, a holiday on a space platform beyond the planet Pluto. You can pay now a deposit. Yes, I put the deposit in my bank and it collects interest. Now that's a particularly Keynes thought. But you know that in America they have actually sold the other side of the moon in plots already. And people who want to go to a moony holiday, singing everyone's gone to the moon, they've paid up already. Money out of their deposit account and got into another deposit account and he's earning. Now imagine the situation where finally people begin to get this idea. It really is a battle between intellective dubious doubt, material investigation, pursuit of power, and the faith that God, that is absolute intelligence, is in charge of everything. Now they come together and logic fights with the tongue, a two-edged sword in the mouth, called two-edged because it cuts the right and left. It cuts the haves and it cuts the have-nots. The right is the haves, the left is the have-nots. And it attacks both the haves for power pursuit and the left have-nots for laziness of intellect, for non-decision. Now, at that time, the Keynes pursuit of power will have produced fantastical armaments of which you see a vague shadow today in Reagan's Star Wars with laser beams. Now, they've already demonstrated that using radio waves at certain frequencies and beaming them, they can cause a human mind to blank out hundreds of miles away. And those people who are pursuing power, and it's not only in Russia that this happens, who are pursuing power, investigating 
thanks to radio frequencies, are hoping that they can paralyze by radio anybody who disagrees with them. And you have a two-way television in which you look at the screen, but inside it's a component looking at you and recording you and sending your statement that you make in your private sitting room back to headquarters. So if you see a program and say that's rotten, you're on tape on your specially supplied TV. This sounds like 1984. I'm all well. But it's coming and they can do it. And they do such amazing things with their Keynesian electrotechnics that they would deceive. It says, if it were possible, even the elect. But the elect cannot be deceived because they do not rest on empirical and intellectual proofs. They live in faith. You say, all your inventions are nothing but phenomena. They are behaviors of power. But they have no validity other than the will. Everything goes back to the will. What is called God the Father, what is called Allah, the all-compassionate, the all-merciful, he is so by act of will. He does not depend on his intellect. He wills his intellect to solve problems, but he is not subject to it because he is pure ultimate will. Now there's going to be a fight between sections of the human race. And there will be Canish and in the line of Abel crying for vengeance from the ground. Faith will battle with intellectual structures in this world. The signs are that they're rushing madly towards it because of their nuclear shelters and their hope that they can have a worldwide nuclear war and still be safe. Now the intellectuals think they can be safe because they have technically made the shelters to make themselves safe. But the ones of faith say we will be safe even if you blow us up with your nuclear weapons because we are not orientated into the physical world at all and we don't care if you kill us. You kill the prophets you kill the apocalyptics where you can find them and you will kill anybody in this world. But what you cannot do in the killing is get rid of the human soul, the human spirit, the intelligent power that constitutes a human being. Now as soon as you don't care about physical death, your faith improves. Whereas if you care about dying physically, your intellect improves and destroys your faith. Now there's going to be a great fight and that fight will be fought and this is very subtle. It will be fought and the anti-God spirit will be defeated. And apparently the anti-God spirit will have been wiped out. But then he says a very funny thing. For a thousand years the Messiah will rule that means after the shock of that tremendous conflict, logic will keep people in order for a thousand years. Now it doesn't matter whether it means a thousand terrestrial years, the number of times the earth goes around the sun, or whether a thousand means what it means symbolically. A thousand is thou sand. It means a lot of little bits. It doesn't have to be five minutes or five seconds. You can do an awful lot of thinking if you're in a hurry. And that would be symbolically thousands of thoughts. 
itself for a thousand there will be a rulership of lodging and then it says a very strange thing after this thousand years of rule the devil will be loosened again and why should that be? there's a big battle in which truth defeats error and then it's a thousand years that means down to tiny details of rulership and then for some weird reason as it says in the book known only to God but known to anybody who thinks about it all the people who were glad of the victory of logic cosmic logic not human empirical power pursuing intellect all the ones who have faith in God will be very glad but there will be many who pretend to have faith and haven't so then the devil is let loose that means the conflict starts again and then the people who thought maybe the devil was the right one to back will come out in the open and start trying the same old empirical intellective trick again then this time it will be an absolute victory and they will be destroyed and after that there will be what's called a new heaven and a new earth now the new heaven is a new concept heaven is in your head the heaved up place it's a group of concepts of truth cosmic universal truth and the new earth is the physical application of the new concept then nobody ever again will be in doubt that faith is a unifying principle and intellect is a diversifying disintegrating principle and that will be the end where end equals finish and goal prophesied from the beginning unity which is the origin of the cosmos and which is made by a deliberate act of will within infinite chaos that unity will win the battle against disintegrating tendencies of power pursuing intellect and never again will any of the people who have gone through that process be in doubt that the primordial unific will of faith must necessarily win the final battle now how do we feel about that? we are in a position of having to choose either we are going to be persons of faith that believe everything is fundamentally alright no matter how bad it looks or doubt it and in our doubt defend ourselves against other people by deliberately pursuing power and wealth to increase power and power to increase wealth and try to submit other people to our will it's a simple either or now the way we choose internally determines what we get and it says this very horrible thing after the last battle whether in the individual or amongst the nations those who were fighting on the wrong side will go to hell and what does that mean? it means they will know personally that they were on the wrong side you do not need any other help and remember that nice Sanskrit term for hell which is a Nahu word, a serpent word the wicked serpent, the old worm that dies not and tries to deceive people all the people who willed 
power for themselves to enrich themselves and dominate other people having their memories that that was their will. So by resonance they are all grouped together. They become a group held together by identity of purpose. Now they're put into a condition where they're held, that's what hell means, held in by their own belief. And the condition they're in is called hell and it's defined as the place where con men are grouped together and there are no victims. Now imagine a place where all con men are gathered together and there are no victims, nobody to dupe. What's it like? <laughs> Just imagine, supposing everybody you knew were a con man. Supposing you were not, but you were allowed to peep through a little hole in hell. And you saw everybody there was trying to con everybody, but knowing that nobody was cannibal because they were all con men. Now, what would that expression look like? A Bosch painting? Oh, yes. Ten times worse. <coughs> Ten times worse. Innumerable. Innumerable times. Infinitely worse would be the condition of those people who have voted internally for lying and deceiving and pursuing power and wealth to dominate other people. Only suddenly all the other people, through faith, have become superior to the tricks of the government. So the men are not condemned by anything other than their own self-evaluation. Now how can there be an escape from that? Not possible. So then we have a, a new Jerusalem and it's four square, it's a Masonic place. It's like the Kaaba in Mecca. It's a cube with six faces. And you sit in the middle of it, you look up and you see infinite power above, you look down, you see the earth, you look to the right and see your powers developed, you see to the left the powers you have not developed, you see your clothes pass behind you and an infinite future open in front of you. And you sit in that cube and you know every facet of your sixfold being. And nobody can deceive you because you do not deceive yourself. You know, the gypsies say you can't fool an honest man. Because the honest man does not try to deceive himself into thinking you're smarter than the man doing the sale. Now, if you don't deceive yourself, you are not deceivable by anybody else. It's not possible. You can only be deceived by accepting bait. And if you examine every piece of bait given to you, you find whether there's a hook in it or whether it was poisoned or bent in some mysterious way and you would not be deceived. So nobody is deceived except the self-deceivers. And finally, they're stuck with that knowledge. I was deceived because I deceived firstly myself in my secret pursuit of power. And after that last judgment, the final judgment, is the totality of all the judgments of the total human race. And then the one who sits in real power is called the Messiah and the Son of Man. Son of Man means the totality of all the judgments ever made historically by the total human race. 
is son of man. Now the total human race is nothing but the extended being of God through innumerable vehicles of experience. So total humanity is God manifest as human beings. And the totality of all opinions of the totality of the human race adds up to cosmic truth. And that is the Son of Man, therefore, is the Son of God. Now he comes and he says, four horsemen will ride and there will be terrible devastation. There will be war, there will be disease, there will be famine, there will be pestilence. Now anybody who studied the history of war knows that that is what war produces. War brings death, brings famine, brings pestilence. When you kill bodies, they corrupt. Food is destroyed. You actually deliberately destroy enemy foodstuffs, don't you? Pestilence is when, on the battlefield, amidst all the dead bodies, the insects and the microbes and the viruses multiply. And then they blow all over the earth. And everybody gets a little bit of war, of death, of famine, of pestilence, spreading all over the world. That's one of the biggest deterrents to governments today, there is. The idea of bacterial destruction. You might release in bacterial warfare bacteria that might multiply under appropriate conditions in the right weather, the right climate, and get totally out of hand and come back and destroy the children of the rulers. That's very sobering. But the ultimate triumph is one riding with the double-edged sword of the mouth, talking logic, striking at the powerful hands and the lazy have-nots, equally. Horse means hierarchical power issuance. White horse means the balance of all colours. And when you split white light, you get a rainbow. And the seven colours of the rainbow refer to seven temperaments. You see that in the symbolism of the planets. You have a, a grabbing Saturnine temperament, you have a Jupiter expansive generous, you have a martial warlike, a Venusian sensuous appreciator, a mercurial quickness, a moon phases state. Now all these are temperaments and they are subdivisions which when they're put together in perfect balance constitute the rider on the white horse. Every individual human being is then, when self-understood fully, is the rider on the white horse, who is coming, conquering erroneous ideas, and to conquer, conquering and to conquer, conquering erroneous ideas, and to conquer any future erroneous ideas that might breed from the other ones that were corrupt. That's a short outline of the, some of the implications of the apocalyptic <coughs> writing. And it puts us in a position of necessary choice. And if we decide not to choose to choose, that is a choice too. To shirk the necessity for choice.
Shirk is not a bad uh, Arabic word with a slightly different pronunciation, which is not a good thing. Nilfar? What does S-H-I-R-K mean? S-H-I-R-K What does he mean? Means who, who always thankful to God, whatever God gives him, he accepts or she accepts. Is it? In English, it means the opposite. Whatever you avoid of the good that you know about is called shirking. Shear the king. Oh, shirking. Shirking means he doesn't believe in God. See? Yeah. How come that word in Arabic is in English? Is it the Muslim conquest? A person who dodges responsibility and doesn't believe in God is a shirker. And we have to decide whether we do or do not believe in God. And it's a choice. And if we say, I don't want to choose wrongly, so I choose not to choose, that's the worst crime of all. It says in the book that if you do that, I will spew thee out of the mouth. So we're in a cleft stick, aren't we? We have to choose, and to refuse to choose is a choice. And that's the worst guilt of all. Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.